You are listening to Radio Ramadan 365 podcasts. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim Radio Ramadan 87.7 FM 1530 on medium wave Radio Ramadan 365 you can find us on DAB um and also this live program is on i syllabus website uh, along with facebook live um inshallah we will be with you from now till iftar and iftar today is at 9:36 on 18th day of may uh monday today 24th of ramadan 25th for some um and inshallah we'll take you for uh with with the translation and recitation of a selection of surah kahf uh, again 94 number onwards um and after that we'll have commentary of uh, these ayahs along with main themes and branch discussions with my guest sheikh rizwan muhammad let's listen to the ayahs and we will be engaging with those ayahs after we have listened to the recitation in the name of allah the absolutely merciful the especially merciful qalu ya dhal qarnayn inna ya'juja wa ma'juja mufsiduna fil ardi fa hal naj'alu laka kharjan ala an taj'ala baynana wa baynahum sadda they said o dhul qarnayn verily gog and magog are doing great mischief in the land Shall we then pay you a tribute in order that you might erect a barrier between us and them? Qala ma makkanni fihi rabbi khayrun fa'inuni biquwwatin aj'al baynakum wa baynahum radma. He said, That in which my Lord has established me is better. So help me with strength. I will erect between you and them a barrier. آتوني زبر الحديد حتى إذا ساوى بين الصدفين قال انفخوا حتى إذا جعله نارا قال آتوني حتى إذا جعله نارا قال آتوني أفرغ عليه قطرا Give me pieces of iron. Then when he had filled up the gap between the two mountain cliffs, he said, Blow. Till when he had made it fire, he said, Bring me molten copper to pour over it. فَمَا اسْطَاعُوا أَن يَظْهَرُوهُ وَمَا اسْتَطَاعُوا لَهُ نَقْبًا So they were made powerless to scale it or dig through it. قال هذا رحمه من ربي فاذا جاء وعد ربي جعله دكا وكان وعد ربي حقا ذوالقرنين said this is a mercy from my lord but when the promise of my lord comes he shall level it down to the ground and the promise of my lord is ever true وَتَرَكْنَا بَعْضَهُمْ يَوْمَئِذٍ يَمُوجُ فِي بَعْضٍ وَنُفِخَ فِي الصُّورِ فَجَمَعْنَاهُمْ جَمْعًا On that day, we shall leave them to surge like waves on one another, and the horn will be blown, and we shall collect them all together. 
And on that day, we shall present hell to the disbelievers, plain to view. Those whose eyes had been under a covering from my reminder, and who could not bear to hear it. Do then those who disbelieve think that they can take my servants as lords and protectors besides me? Verily, we have prepared hell as an entertainment for the disbelievers. Were, this is a selection of ayah for today's discussion. Um, and as always, Assalamu uh, alaikum, Sheikh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa Sheikh, 24th of Ramadan and almost at the end of the surah as well. Uh, possibly four or five more sessions to go, uh, with maybe one of the sessions being a charity appeal uh, here live at Ramadan. So we'll probably have about four sessions. Um, enough, uh, inshallah, to conclude the surah and draw lessons from it and have a, probably a more general discussion on all the, the themes that we've covered. Uh, for today, uh, carrying on with the story of Yajuj Majuj, uh, along with the concluding ayahs of this particular section, which is not directly related to the story, uh, it actually punctuates it. You know why the what the purpose of story is mm-hmm. uh, the the end of the today's section. Mm-hmm. So uh, yesterday my um, confusion, if you uh, if you want to call it, was that and still is. Yajuj majuj is it a historic phenomena, or is it uh, something which carries on from the day it started and will continue until the day of judgment? Mm-hmm. So. The issue of Ya'juj and Ma'juj, um, they are historical um, occurrences that happened and within that is the story of Ya'juj and Ma'juj. So they're historical peoples um, and so they're not taken to be some kind of metaphor or some kind of um, figure of speech to indicate some kind of destructive force which is uh, non-human or even some kind of, um, you know, kind of indiscernible um, effect that happens upon societies and humanity. It is a specific historical group of peoples who were found by Dhul Qarnayn and stemmed from encroaching into the majority of the civilised world at the time. And what we know is that they, they're being restrained and constrained within a specific geographical locations or, or, or allowed to maraud in, in certain locations and not in others will come to an end. The question is when that is. So the question that um, has always been at the forefront of Muslim scholars' discussions is at what point are they 
as the Quran says, descending down from every high place. You know, just you know, like a, like a wave coming down, and that's described by this word yansilun, which is this idea of just um, a kind of deluge of of, of of effect. Now, that I think I spoke touched upon it previously. I think that the most intelligible, um, acceptable understanding would be that they are not in some way constrained somewhere where at the end of time that we let loose doesn't make any sense the religious texts that we have don't indicate that at all in terms of um, when they, were, they will be released all we understand from religious texts is in keeping with how the Quran works with other similar ideas is that they were prevented from spreading or encroaching at will from wherever they were it doesn't mean that they were enclosed within a specific um, building or structure mm -hmm. It means that there was a structure created which halted their marauding into other people's lands and, and, and sowing destruction. Now, the only issue is at what point were they able to have the freedom to move to their normal activities of pillaging and looting and sowing destruction. And that essentially is in the hadith of Imam Bukhari. The most authentic hadith we have is the hadith that the Prophet warned and woke up and warn the community that the that they have been able to breach the barriers that would be play, that were placed. In other words, they were able to now. The metaphor, obviously, the problem used is that something there was a there was um, a break in in the in the in the place that was um, stopping them. But again, that's a metaphor to show that they're able to go beyond what was stopping them. Mm -hmm. Now, the way that you describe that, you you could say, well, they walked around it, they they jumped over it, or they found a way of way to um, you know move beyond it in some way but the most poetic metaphorical uh, and impactful way is to describe a hole which you can actually see in your mind which is slowly crumbling and they're, they're able to get through mm, and mm. so when the person said that uh, that's the most authentic narration we have and he said it you know um, roughly about um, <coughs> that would be about a thousand years after this initial blockage was created or 900 years or 700 years, depending on who you think Zulqarnain uh, uh, was. And so from that moment, the, the, the Qur'an seems to indicate that they will be let loose, which is clearly mentioned here. And the hadith of Imam Bukhari seems to indicate, which occurs in numerous places in Sahih Bukhari, and seems to indicate that that, that that breach took place. The only thing that stops us seeing that and makes us insist on thinking that they're in some kind of cage, mm -hmm. some kind of prison, Somewhere on earth in that area is Hadith of Imam Tirmidhi in which it said that the Yajuj and Majuj they, they, they end up um, breaking a hole and almost breaching through the, 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 the barrier. And when night comes, they, they put up their tools and they say, We'll start, we'll do it tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But they don't say, Inshallah. Mm -hmm. And then the next day comes and they find that it's been miraculously closed and they start again and by the end of the day again they've managed to create this hole and they stop and put up their, their tools and they say we'll, we'll do it tomorrow and they don't say inshallah so the hadith indicates that first of all that they are they haven't been able to and the second thing the reason why they have been unable to do that is because um, they didn't say inshallah 
But it's a very strange hadith and it's mm. also a weak hadith. So what I find interesting is a lot of people when you discuss, even scholars when you discuss it with them, well they say what about the hadith of Imam Tirmidhi and other hadith like it, which, which show that they, they're kept back until the end of time. So the end of time will come and they will um, launch themselves onto humanity and, 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 uh, as a scourge. So it's almost like they are this kind of um, strange creature that will be let loose at the end of time and this is a proof. But the hadith of Imam Tirmidhi's collection is is weak and Imam Tirmidhi never set out to collect Sahih hadith in the first place. Um, and the other strange thing is about it is, is that they is um, that the thing that stops them doing it is inshallah. They don't say inshallah, but they're not believers. They're not people that um, it's like in Surah Al-Kahf, you know, when you know in the story of the, the gardens, when you enter the garden, say mashallah. Yeah. You know, that, that idea is for believers advising somebody who doesn't believe, but they're not doing it. Another thing about that story, which is strange, is there's so many of Ya'juj and Ma'juj. If they're so dangerous, why would they put up their tools at the end of the day and stop digging if they knew it's so important to get out or whatever? Mm-hmm. You know, the, it doesn't make much sense in terms of the text. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mm-hmm. make sense. In te- it's not as weak anyway. So the most plausible thing is to make that leap of judgment, which is to say they're, they're a human, human race who has... Um, affected and spread but their effect will become most pronounced and apparent for everybody clearly at the time of the coming of the Prophet Isa and after that and this will this will be when the real destruction of what they've done becomes apparent because you know that um, you could have you know foundations in a house which are rotting or you know if you had a wood structure and it's rotten from the, 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 the foundations it doesn't become apparent until it's too late and it just collapses. Mm-hmm. And then it all becomes clear what was happening behind the facade of everything being okay. This way when you buy a house, you might think it's a lovely house. And when the report comes through, it says basically it's worth nothing because it's got this structural issue because of the fact it's underneath a subway or something like that. Mm-hmm. And essentially what will happen is the facade of the world working and managing to tick along will continue until it will get to the point where the whole facade starts to crumble because mm-hmm. it cannot be self-sustained and it'll be clear that the earth has been sucked of its wealth and its resources um, by a specific mindset instilled by a group of people who will not just be a group of people as a niche but they will actually have spread and, and disinfected this kind of worldview upon society and, and I think a lot of scholars have when they've spoken about this they have t- talked about it as being at its core, a materialistic and um, secular philosophy. In other words, everything is just what is in front of you in terms of materials, in terms of resources. And essentially, God is not part of the equation, which means morality essentially is something that um, you can make up as you go along, as you develop society. The problem with that is that you know whatever you think is moral today, tomorrow will be up for discussion. It's not being moral mm. anymore. And so, you know, this is why decision-making processes will be quite interesting because the things we think are evil today will not be evil tomorrow. The kind of things that are inconceivable for us to accept in the past will now be acceptable. And that is, um, you know, you can do mind games, but I, th- I mean, I kind of mentioned it before, mm. that you have to, then you have to decide whose life is more important, you know, what's more important, pleasure or, or life for other people. And I think it's, it's quite interesting in the COVID context where 
you know, we have things like social distancing, we have isolation, we have quarantining. Those mean completely different things in the UK or in America for people that are rich and people that are poor. Hmm. So the rich people will say to the poor people who are the frontline workers, essentially, apart from you know, certain professions, you know, go out and work and make the society work and all the rest of it. Take a hit for the team, all that kind of stuff. Hmm. It's easy for them to do because they can work easily at home. Hmm. But if you have that discussion with people in, the, in a developing global south, then there's no concepts, you know, of social distancing, quarantining yep. and isolation because who's going to pay the bills? Who's going to provide the rent? Who's going to provide food? Do you understand? It doesn't make... In, in the, in the, in it's the, a luxury. In the, in the balance of things, it makes no sense. And so what will happen is that things that are, 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 are pivotal and are based upon supporting life will essentially be balanced up with things that provide luxury for other people. And that's this Yajuj mentality where you just suck out everything from its core and you don't really care about the morality. What you care about is resources and power and, and um, influence. Hmm. And that is why, you know, a lot of the scholars that talked about this, they talked about European civilization being, being very much infused with this Yajuj and mentality, which is basically pillaging. And the reality is the statistics do not lie if you look at resources and the way that Western um, societies have pillaged and are still pillaging structurally um, the resources of the global south. Mm. It's, it's undeniable. And I think other countries like China have added into that by their encroachment into Africa, for example. Mm. You know, they say don't, um, don't take the aid from and resources and infrastructure from the Europeans and Americans, take it from us. But essentially what they're doing is lots of amazing articles on this and, and research that they're basically doing the same thing. Sheikh, another thing... Uh, that was they create the infrastructure for you as an African society, but they, there are all these buy-ins that you have to do, which is you're not free anymore. You've bought into this. They're not doing it for free. And therefore, that sucking of resources is, I mean, very, very clear. I don't think it's up for discussion. I think it's very clear. Hmm. The only thing is, are you just saying it's just capitalism gone wild, or are you saying it's something that the Quran talks about as being a, a, a mentality and a DNA of a specific group, group of tribes? Yeah, Juj and Majuj. And that's the only thing we differ on. Hmm. Like the leftist, anti, anti capitalist thinker and, and activist will say the same thing I'm saying, but they'll just say, well, it's just greed capital, you know, based on capital. Yeah. I'll say the greed based on capital is based upon an in, inherent deficiency in the human psyche, which is exhibited by a tribe called, two tribes called Yajuj and Majuj, who are not these small local tribes, but they're essentially um, groups of people that have ended up spreading. So it's a mindset. It's a mindset, but it's also, I can imagine, it, a it's DNA reality has and a, has mindset. A, so it has a very specific DNA as well. It's not as if it's just a mindset, it's just biologically. Um, located within tribes hmm. in the past and, and in, in the past but it runs through the humanity now no I think yeah and there's this hadith but they're kind of they're not weak but they're kind of um, hasan and, and weak that, that indicate that the majority of people at the end of time will be in some way descendant from Ya'juj and Ma'juj so hmm. there's different interpretations of what that means but the point is this is not like you know, 0.001% of the population, two small tribes all of a sudden um, taking over the world. So I think and how, how are they 
a symbol of end of sign uh, end of times how do they how, how do they mark the end of times how do they mark the end of times the 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 the, the common narrative like imam barzanji and people have written on this topic in detail and try to sequence events is that they say that um, they don't appear in the narrative until the the antichrist has been killed hmm. by the by the messiah isa ibn maryam alayhi salam and after that the the um, effect of Ya'juj and Ma'jud will become apparent during the age of Isa and the corruption will become clear and the hadith of you know the clearing of the Tiberius um, um, lake will become apparent. So all these things will happen. At that point, they will spread corruption to the point that people will beseech the Prophet Isa to, um, to rise up against them. He'll make a simple dua and they will be um, effaced from the face of this earth. So all we know is that they at that point... The climax of their of their sucking of the earth resources and their ifsad, their corruption and their destruction of earth, will become clear for everybody, and at that point they will come to an end. In other words, their actions will come to an end, and at that point, they they talk about the golden age of the Prophet Isa Ali Salatu Wasalam, in which he um, performs the Hajj, he visits the Prophet Sallam, he. Um, he rules and he lives a life, he's married and all the rest of it. And he's buried in, in the city of the Prophet So all that narrative is, is quite um, well authenticated. I mean, mm-hmm. the far, last thing we know about him is that he, he, he's, he passes away um, and bury, is buried where the Prophet is buried. And the interesting about that is we know the hadith of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu in which he says the Prophets are buried where they die, where they pass away. This is from the Prophet mm. And so it leads you to the conclusion That the Prophet Isa He, he passed away Where he's buried mm. And it's worth thinking about that mm. Like what, In other words He's not brought to the city of the Prophet From Jerusalem or wherever he is He is there for a reason Which means that he's in the mosque of the Prophet Isa um, Isa is in there I'm sorry Hazrat Isa salam Yes Is in In the Prophet's mosque Okay Why? Bismillah I, I don't know if that's That's news to you but um, I thought it was common knowledge Okay Right so He is in the mosque of the Prophet And the reason why he's in the mosque of the Prophet To visit the Prophet And his, his his passing away happens in the mosque of the Prophet Which means he's buried then in the, in the mosque of the Prophet Where the the Hijra Sharifa is the, the sacred um, chamber of the Prophet and is, and it meant that he travelled to send his um, greetings to the Prophet. That's the only thing we can understand, and that the city, the city or the place was blessed enough for him to have thought of that, and that's the end of that era. But that happens after the coming to an end of Yajuj and Majuj, and so there's a conclusion in terms of the the, the end times, which is that the the, the Antichrist is dealt with by the Prophet Isa. During his time, the Ya'juj and Ma'juj are, are dealt with. And he presides over what, what is essentially a, a golden age. Um, and the Hadith describe it as being a very much a golden age. Almost, you know, like John Lennon's um, Imagine. He's got a very famous song. <laughs> so this kind of idyllic, utopian perfection will mm. only be lived out there where, you know, even the sheep will f- feel... Um, no fear from the wolf kind of situation, and so that that's the kind of conclusion of 
human humanity in a sense after that essentially you are talking about um a, a spiral down into depravity after the after the passing of the prophet isa so coming back to just to digress there that was a bit of a digression but the whole idea of the ajuj and majuj being withheld from encroaching onto human societies is said by the Qurnain as being qala hadha rahmatun mir rabbi this is a mercy from god from, from my lord fa idha jaa wa'du rabbi ja'alahu dakka and but when the command of my lord comes he will make this barrier you know level down you know come down and yeah. just become nothing wa kana wa'du rabbi haqqa and, and the promise of my lord is true and then it says wa tarakna ba'dhum yawma idhin yamuju fi ba'd and so the Qur'an moves to another section And this is where either you take it to be completely separate Or you take it to be related um, On that day Now Yawma Idin is interesting because on that day it, Does it mean the day that this barrier is brought down? Which seems to be the kind of way that this works Or is it related to the way the Qur'an usually uses Yawma Idin? It doesn't, it doesn't, like, on that day, when I say on that day, if I say to you, you know, on that day, um, I'm going to make sure this works. And then what you'll ask me is, what day? Mm-hmm. Now, in the Qur'an, it's almost the given that Yawma Idin has two aspects to it. One, uh, the one of which, and is the most poetic and forceful of which, is it doesn't tell you what that day is. But there is a day. Because you should know what the day is. Yeah. Like if Allah says Yawma Idin, you right away think there's only if if Allah is speaking about a day, yeah. And Muslims, as in terms of your belief, تؤمن بالله واليوم الآخر. Do you understand? Like it's so inbuilt in the Muslim mindset that your mind just goes, yes, I get it. Yeah, Yawm Din is Yawm Din. Yeah. So, but not that the day that this comes down because that would be too clear. So the Quran is so powerful because, exactly because it doesn't conform to the way that we speak. And this is why if we say it refers to the day of judgment, then it doesn't necessarily relate to the story of Ya'juj and Ma'juj, which means that this barrier will have come to an end well before that day. Hmm. Whereas if you connect it to it, you're saying, well, the barrier comes down and the day starts. But it doesn't make sense even in that sense because the day is not, the, the barrier doesn't come down in the day of judgment. Uh-huh. The barrier comes down before that, during the time of Isa, at least. And so the problem that scholars have, I think, and the problem that they have is sometimes they take the eye of the ball and they don't stick to the rules of Arabic grammar, but also the rules of general speech, mm. which clearly show that. And theology, which is that if you're saying that it's related to the Ajuj and Ma'juj barrier being brought down, and it's on the day of judgment, Yawma'idhin, that is going to be very, very difficult to, to describe. So Allah says, and on that day, we shall leave them, and the, the better understanding is to say them is humanity, humanity in the jinn, to surge like waves upon one another. In other words, this on the day of judgment, you will see that terrible um, thing that the Quran always talks about, of the fact that people yeah, are... are Yamuj yeah, is like this... Oceans, you know, like the ocean waves smashing against each other, where it's in you're indiscernible from one one piece of water from another, one wave from another is just mingled up, mm-hmm. and so people will just be crushed in this in this melee of of, of coming together. 
And on that day the trumpet will be blown And then they will be collected Jama'ah And they will be collected Collectively or collective Absolutely And so the story of Ya'juj and Ma'juj Is there almost to frighten us into This impending um, Destruction on earth But then the Quran almost then Says there's something far more greater To think about that is more fearful Of which is the day when all of you will be just congealed together like waves um, and then the, the, the time will come to an end. We are uh, covering Surah Kahf and in Surah Kahf uh, the story of Zulqarnain and then Yajuj Majuj. Uh, just before the break, um, what crossed my mind was this, that the, the stories covered, they have um, an opposing uh, two opposing characters, both in, in the story of sleepers, uh, where the the good character uh, is the weaker one, mm-hmm. and and the opposition is stronger, and they leave the city. Then you have um, the story of Musa Islam, where the, the 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 characters are varied, and the characters. Uh, no way justify the in normal circumstances um, any human being uh, with any amount of power uh, would carry out the acts that the Khizr al-Islam did mm-hmm. no matter how much you know about someone without having a trial you would not do what was done mm-hmm. killing taking the boat off so again the 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 good and the bad, if you like, the, the opposition of good character and combating has no match mm-hmm. in it. This story here, the the the, the good character is the stronger one, mm-hmm. Zulkarnain. And the opposition almost goes into oblivion. It becomes non-existent because of the, the wall mm-hmm. uh, that is there between the past and and they don't really interfere. Mm-hmm. They, they, they've been stopped. Mm-hmm. You don't go in a fight, but they're stopped. Mm-hmm. They, they don't really affect the life that goes on. Yet we are asked to take seek refuge mm-hmm. and be wary of it mm-hmm. till the day of Qiyamah mm-hmm. from that mindset, from that DNA. Mm-hmm. Yeah? I'm living now in this situation and we are responsible to leave the planet as I say, we are Khalifa Al-Ard. Mm-hmm. We have a responsibility of living on this earth as if you're never going to die mm-hmm. in the terms of good. How do we interact with this concept of uh, an enemy within which is not seen, we still have to identify it we have to look for it mm-hmm. and then we have to somehow overcome that mm-hmm. yes bismillah i think what you you seem to be asking or or you, how you presented the question is that the stories in in, in sort of the kahf um, the dynamics of the main characters is different in, in terms of the opposing sides so in the story of the the cave um, there's an oppressive general who's forcing people to worship under force of arms and, and, and fear of death 
and there's the, um, the, the, the sleepers who are weak and they end up being victorious. So that's kind of a dynamic from that perspective. The dynamics from the Prophet Musa and the Prophet Khidr is the dynamics of the probably, I don't know if you meant, meant it that way, but the outward law as being the having the upper hand always and deciding what is right and what's wrong. But this Prophet Khidr um, using what's a, a, a lesser form of um, inspiration to overpower it because the wisdom that he had was stronger than the than the rule of law. Um, but also you, were, you mentioned kind of this idea of doing things that are against the laws of morality and law itself. Um, so I think the, the, prophet, the story of Prophet Khidr and the Prophet Musa the dynamics there are very complicated hmm. in terms of the ilm ladunni, even though it seems to be secondary to the Sharia in terms of how we think, essentially it's much more powerful in understanding and making sense of what happens in the first place because we don't know. The way you make sense of it is to say that, well, certain things are not part of our knowledge. And the story of Dhul-Qarnayn is essentially a story of a very powerful, um, strong ruler, divinely protected, at least divinely protected, if you're not a prophet, who then comes into opposition with a group of people who he subjugates or blanks off. So I think all three of the stories are, the dynamics of them are not, I, I don't see any kind of clear connection in terms of the dynamics between the, the, the characters. Um, nothing clear comes to mind in terms of hmm. um, a kind of parallel that this is, the Surat al-Kahf is presenting a very archetypal structure with which we can understand all three of them and therefore we can take a lesson from all three. So it'd be easy if you said, well, one is an indication of weakness and power and that this one is an indication of power and weakness. Hmm. That good is power, weakness is the evil. Yeah, uh, I, I don't think that's how it, how it would um, how it would work or how, I, I don't how know, it this could is work. You could the make the you could make the parallel if you ignored the story of Khidr and Musa. Yes, that's what I'm saying. So the yeah. the, the the middle story is probably not relevant in this. In no, this it could be. You could say. I mean, you could argue, and and you could make a very good point that the middle story is essentially the 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 the, 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 the kind of watershed where. We don't really know. We're confused to the point that we just have to stick to what the Prophet Musa is saying because that's what we know is law. And so there's no clear power dynamic. Even though you think one is more powerful than the other in terms of knowledge, in terms of um, rationale and logic and ethics and morality, it happens that you're wrong because if you don't have knowledge of what's happening in the behind the scenes, you can't make that moral judgment in the way that God can make the moral judgment. You can make it now, mm-hmm. but you can't make it in the way that God makes it which is taking time into consideration. Um, that's not something we can do. And so you could make that kind of mirroring of, on the one hand, the, the strong oppressive ruler, and the other hand, the strong just ruler, subjugating. Mm-hmm. Um, but the only int- thing is that to continue the parallel, you would have to look at the, the, the other side, which is um, the general who is oppressive just disappeared. Whereas the the weak, um, oppressive force here will become manifest and will become something that will continue. Whereas the general and the governor became nothing in the story of the, the people of the, ca- of the cave. Mm-hmm. So there's no kind of parallel that you can run there. But I think... Yeah, but uh, what I'm trying to say or what I'm thinking is that th- there are 
for, for a person living faith mm-hmm. you could be faced with both situations okay. mm. uh, you, you could be in a phase of history where you are kaf ashab kaf you are sleepers okay mm. and or you could be in a phase where you are with zulkarnain and there are different tests with uh, along mm. that that would go along with these two characters these two dynamics that's that's actually a very good point because then that is the the that is the two stark sides of the same coin which is either of, um oppressed and on the back foot <coughs> or in control and on the front foot you have both and in both situations you have ethical responsibilities moral responsibilities mm. so a person who's a pauper and and and, and disenfranchised and weak has as much moral uh, agency they call it now this agency power and freedom as the person that has the armies and the wealth and the power and the and and mm. and, and and all the all the trappings of of um, you know sovereignty you essentially have the same agency to do something and that essentially that is a very empowering uh, message that islam you know had you know when we talked about the seerah the seerah is essentially these two aspects which is the prophet's power and agency and potency in Mecca al-Mukarramah when he was you know from a worldly perspective downtrodden and the companions were being tortured and they were being exiled and they were being um, sanctioned um, sanctions were imposed against them that agency was as strong if not stronger than the agency that they had in Medina when they had the they had mm. arms they had the ability the permission to fight to defend themselves they had the ability to um, send expeditions and they had military power they had land they had all mm. these things and so agency was exactly the same in both i, I sometimes think that the the established authority mm. and affluence mm-hmm. is perhaps uh, we've never seen i mean in in our lifetime mm. we are probably in the other side mm. uh, and the affluence and the established power and to be on the up mm-hmm. is perhaps a very strange difficult test to to carry mm. that responsibility of being responsible for what mm. US is just now <laughs> as a community did you say US i did say that okay <laughs> i just i thought my the, 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 my, the, my um, yeah the, the, the phones, your, emperors your, your, of the world yeah so i mean i've talked about this before i think that, that, that that's an emperor with no clothes it's in it's in private debt of a nature that is not unsustainable it will come crashing down so federal debt is as bad as private debt so it's 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 a question of when that's when that when that comes to haunt them because unpayable so mm. the issue is that's unsustainable unpayable so where's that where's that supremacy coming from it's coming from wealth that is owed to some something else we don't know what that specific structure is but it's a financial system and so i think your point is correct is that everybody it actually comes to a very important point which is actually a one of the biggest issues in islam nowadays is our mindset as muslims is very much on the back foot complaining to authority hmm. do you understand that's our mindset of Always. our young children young people it's 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 become the mindset of our activists it's become the mindset of everybody that has a that has a, a privilege with it which is that it is easy to speak justice and power to authority in a situation where you always think that you're downtrodden in which case the case to argue is very simple yeah easy to be corbin 
Well, you're saying it, not me. <laughs> Meaning, no, no, the point, the point yeah. I'm making is that it's very easy. You're on a downwards, you know, you're going downhill because everything is an affront to your rights and your, and your, and your civic, um, you know, kind of civic role. Um, but to be given the power, and the, I mean, the example, if you're from UK, you'll know this example. In the, in the, previous, uh, the previous election to this election, there was debates between the, the main political parties. You had Labour, you had Conservative, you had another party, um, Labour, Conservative. And you had another party, third party Lib Dem. in the UK. Yeah? Lib Dem? Lib Dem, yes. And there was, a, <laughs> there was a person in that party who headed it was called Nick Clegg. <laughs> okay. So the interesting was in these debates, which is so hilarious because it, it relates to what we're talking about, in the debates, it ended up having, the, after the first and second debates, everybody agreed with Nick Clegg. Yeah. Because he was essentially never elected, unelectable. So he, is, he, he can easily criticise every single position that everybody sure. makes. And so the other leaders were so spineless that they basically ended up agreeing that what he was saying was correct because mm. they didn't want to go into direct confrontation. Mm. The two big juggernauts of, of political... Um, life in the, in the UK, and so, it, but the point is, the Conservatives won the election. They didn't have a majority. They went into coalition with Nick Clegg. Nick Clegg then had to then deal with the idea that now you're not from the outside on this easy yeah. downward role of just being on the on the on the, on the sidelines criticizing and having your political theories about um, disenfranchisement and and suffrage and all the rest of it. You're now a person that has to decide, okay, this is the, the, this is the tax income for the country, this is the outgoings that come in, this is, the, this is the security issues we face, this is the police issues, this is the issues about immigration, education, all that. When it comes to your desk, then all of a sudden that luxury of, of being the armchair critic and the kind of, in our context, the left-wing um, you know, anarchist mindset. I was an anarchist when I was at university anyway. <laughs> So I've, I've still got books from um, Kropotkin and Bakunin in my, in my library, which I need to burn before somebody sees them. But essentially, that mindset is the easiest mindset to be in because it is so easy to just point that finger. Yeah. And the interesting thing is when it's, when it's applied, when that kind of left-wing politics is applied, the destruction that comes out of it is such that you can easily say, well, that's not the type of left-wing socialism I wanted. Yeah. I wanted a different one. But that's always going to happen. Yeah, like when the communists came into power and the Marxists came into power, what came into what happened in all of the all the, all the states where it was was essentially the same thing mm. of different degrees. So Islamists shouldn't be co-opted by polit- I mean, if you're a Muslim, you shouldn't co-opt your religion to a political worldview that is indoctrinating and dogmatic. Yeah. You should be free enough to have the courage to say there's 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 aspects of. Capitalism, which is the ability for people to earn and 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 save and have private property, that are laudable, and there's aspects of, um, you know, Marxist ideology, which is perfectly laudable as well, which is to help the people that are disenfranchised by structural structural violence. And it is there is this sophistication required, I think, for a mindset, a Muslim mindset, to be in always in a state of not complaining, mm-hmm. but actually being in charge. Mm-hmm. Of affairs, mm. of your own affairs, and of your community's affairs. Mm. This is where I, mean, where I find this most is in people's, in, in Muslims, Muslim activity on social media, and on, on on those kind of social media. Obviously, is somewhere you can you can you can um, publish yourself, mm. so there's no filter. 
Now the problem with not having a filter is obviously it's good that you don't have a filter because if you have a filter, that's sometimes like a state structure, which is a news news agency which decides what is going to be presented. Sure. Social media is democratizing that, but the problem with that is. I've noticed that the people that are active and the people that are that have a voice and and are, are, are out, you know kind of outstanding in their in their social media activities yeah, are usually people that can make those easy sound bites and you know that kind of armchair critic mentality yeah. keyboard warriors keyboard warriors but the point is when I've I mean I've traveled in the Middle East quite a lot I mean I spent a lot of time in Turkey when um president er- Erbakan was he became the president and he was ruling so I saw, and at quite close contact, it wasn't as if, you mm-hmm. know, I was kind of, I knew, you know, there's a lot of conferences that were there, they were attended by the Muslim Brotherhood and jamaat islami all over the world, people came to Turkey to discuss Islam. Mm. And what they all concluded was the Turkish, where they were in the 19, this is the mid-1990s, was far ahead of where they were in Pakistan or Arab countries or sure. Syria or whatever. So you had, you know, people like Fatih Yakin from Lebanon, head of the kind of Muslim Brotherhood there, you know, openly declaring the fact that they had misunderstood the whole issue until they visit Turkey and saw what they need to do. The dynamics, yeah. Yeah, and then what you saw there is when I saw that the Muslim political movements there working, it was they knew that it was completely different when you're in power than when you're just in the outskirts criticising. Yeah. And I think that was one of the lessons that are learnt from the um, Muslim Brotherhood and their election in the Egyptian um, you know, the, the short-lived Egyptian free elections, where despite the the, the the agenda that they had, they had to deal with real politics. Sure. And that allowed their critics to have enough leverage that they could create propaganda against them to undermine their own government, the, the, the elected, properly elected government of uh, Mursi, Ali Rahma. Um, so that's clear. I mean, and that, that is the way that... You can't be naive. I think the thing about scholars, Muslim scholars and Muslim activists, is they are, they, are, they are extremely naive. Sure. Very, very few that you find have pragmatism, understand the real world as it is, and to get what you want to get done sometimes requires you to um, put your hat in with people that necessarily are not uh, people that you would, in all other situations, do that. But yeah, the essential b- thing is... time to, to take correct measures at the right yeah. time. Yeah, because this, I mean, from my perspective, when I look at it, um, my perspective is always related to Islamic law tells us the, the, the parameters within which you can act, do activities and what you can do. <clears throat> and Islamic law and fiqh and especially al-qawaid literature provides you very clear rules of thumb of engagement in politics, in economy, in activism. But unfortunately, when I speak to Muslims, I think they're not don't care about that. They don't care that Islam has this whole idea of the the, the greater evil, you know, the, you know, the, the lesser evil and the less the lesser of harms and the idea of preventing harm and all these kind of principles that are enshrined within Sharia at the, as as being the core principles of you know at the very core is what as Ibn Abd Islam says is is repulsing harm generally even more than pr- protecting. And freedoms and protecting. So the core principle protection. is repulsing. Repulsing harm. Harm. So that could be in this world, which is just bloodshed and and torture and and all the negativities that that take part that take place in the earth, or it could be from the hereafter, which is why do you pray? Why are we fasting? Why do we pay zakat? It's to repulse evil from you from in the hereafter. So Islam essentially, at its core, is not as much as a curing benefit 
as much as it is repulsing harm from yourself in this life and the hereafter. Mm. From yourself and also other people in this life and the hereafter, which is why we do da'wah. We call people and we tell people about Islam because you're repulsing harm from people in the hereafter, whether Muslim or non-Muslim. And on earth, you're told to repulse harm from yourself and from humanity by all the laws that we use, which are, you know, if you think of traffic lights, they're there to repulse harm. Hmm. You know, if you think of the COVID-19 um, lockdown, is there to repulse harm. You could easily say, well, why are we not there to work and, and get back to normal because we miss going to work and all the rest of it. It's because repulsing harm is more important than accruing benefit. And look sure. at that, Islamic law in action in, 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 the, in the world, because it's clear that when everything comes to the crunch, people's, like, people love holidays. You know, people in this country love going to pubs. You know, today, alhamdulillah, Celtic have won the league title. <laughs> and, you know, but no celebrations, we've been, <laughs> we're not allowed to celebrate that. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a question of Islamic law really, when, you know, when it push comes to shove, that's when everybody agrees on Islamic law. You know, even the French... They're yeah. starting to wear niqab. Sure. The French president, the the intelligent man that he is, may Allah guide, guide him to the, 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 the path of Islam. Wearing niqab now. Inshallah, even the worst can be, become the best. Um, wearing, a, wearing a niqab and telling women that wear niqab, you can't wear niqab. 180 euros is fine. <laughs> okay, so uh, time for an ad break. Um, after this ad, inshallah, we'll be going on to this contrast of what we've discussed. Um, and this contrast seems to be in the life of our Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu life as well. There is Makkan period and there is Medina period. The, the Makkah is what the sleeper story is and Medina is what Zulkarnain is possibly. Time just now is 6 past 9 and iftar today is at 9.36. Inshallah, we'll continue until 9.32 just four or five minutes before iftar uh, we will leave you with the track so we have a good 20 minutes or so uh, for another conversation with Sheikh Rizwan Assalamu alaikum Sheikh Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa so uh, before the break um, this idea if you were like it wasn't scripted it came up of the contrasting um, situations Characters mm. sometimes, if I want to call it, haq is um, smaller in number mm -hmm. on the back foot, mm -hmm. uh, trying to prove a point with no power in hand, and then you have situations where mm. uh, man of God or Allah's apostle or Allah's the person or the ideology or the community who is on the up and in control mm -hmm. uh, have all the means mm -hmm. they have the power mm -hmm. they are the decision makers their rule goes their civilization is what prevails mm -hmm. and there's a test in both mm -hmm. for me and the listeners they need to identify themselves as people of faith where they are in history mm -hmm. and how do we see the similar uh, traits in Prophet Sallam's life mm -hmm. how he salam, uh, taught us to be in those situations mm. one is Makkah and then is Medina mm -hmm. yeah so the Prophet wasalam, was obviously blessed by Allah to have experienced and chosen by Allah to experience both so the reason why the Prophet wasalam, is a final prophet is because he does um, represent you know, the coming together of different types of experiences. He 
he epitomizes the, the rulership of the Prophet Sulaiman Ali He also epitomizes the the asceticism and and spirituality of the Prophet Isa Ali so he, he represents all the archetypal prophets like the Prophet Ayyub in terms of his patience, the Prophet um, you know Dawood in terms of his wisdom and his and his you know power and the Prophet Sulaiman Ali as well. He represents the Prophet Musa Ali in terms of taking his people from Minadulumati you know, from darkness into light. He represents all, all these people. Um, but he brings them all um, into one kind of um, experience. And, and this is why Imam Busiri says, Busiri He says, all of them, and here he refers to the prophets. He mentions all the prophets. Then he says, All of the prophets in some way, Multamis is to kind of take something or extract something from the Prophet to take some aspect of his being from them. Rashfa um, I've actually forgotten it. I just mentioned it, but this is the way that things work. So either they take a handful from the, the, the water, or Rashfa min is like this kind of splatter or sprinkling of the blessing. Either they took a lot or a little. Hmm. But all of them actually, in the end of the day, took from the Prophet despite the fact he came after them. The Prophet came after all these prophets. <laughs> but it's almost as if God had created them to show us that they were limited in what they could do because if you look at what they had, they had small things of what the Prophet had. Either they took a sizable amount, but remember, Imam Busiri's amazing imagery is that they're going to an ocean and each of them is taking, like the best is taking a handful. Mm-hmm. And the least of them is, is taking like the splashes. So the whole point he's saying, forget the, the handful and the splashes of water. He's saying, look at the ocean. Hmm. So um, Imam Busiri is like, it's mind-boggling how he came up with this image because he doesn't ma- mention the Prophet Sallallahu but what comes to mind is, if he's talking about water being taken out, you obviously, the obvious thing that comes to mind is, what's his water source? It's the Prophet Sallallahu and mm. so the Prophet had this the the blessing of Mecca and blessing of Medina. Me- Mecca is a blessing because he ha- he was instilled with patience, and his companions were instilled with patience, and he built the companions that stayed with him till the end in that specific context. But to be honest, it is easier to be in a Meccan phase than a Medinan phase. Mm. The temptations are nothing like the ones that exist with power. Yeah, and authority and privilege. So they talk about it nowadays, like you know, like act, you know, kind of political theories like Foucault, for example, talks about um, power and structural power and the fact that that is the very basis of 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 oppression on earth, on in terms of secular understandings of oppression. The po- the point is when you have power and ability, that's when you're really tested. Mm-hmm. Like if you have no ability to do anything, how can you be tested on the things that? Um, you can't even try and do it, but when you have the ability to do them, that's when you're tested because you have to then resist. Mm-hmm. Because power, as I, as I say, corrupts. It may be easy, mm-hmm. but the entire journey mm-hmm. needs to be in, in the direction of trying to achieve the other. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the whole point of... It's like a poison chalice. You, you, you have to go through a process of um, humbling and a process of of humility and a process of learning 
about yourself to be ready for this poison chalice of power and authority mm. and um, having sovereignty. And the, and the problem is, if you don't have the initial steps, you will get the next bit wrong. Yeah, you've got to have the right humility. Yeah, so... Right training. Yeah, so if, you, if, if you're this kind of angry activist who then has the ability to enforce what they think justice is in the world, you know, you will be that Stalin figure. You will be that, sure. that dictatorial figure that will, in the name of helping, you will maim and kill. That's a reality because you're, 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 you, that whole thing of the, 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 the end justifies the means will become the very basis of how you act. And even if you're in the prism of Islamic law and theology and, art and ethics, you will still be selective in what you decide to take on. So I notice this from a lot of people is they're so selective in what Quranic verses or what prophetic stories or what light motives of the Quran and Sunnah they take when they're arguing their case. It's almost as if they know what they want to argue for and then they look for the evidence in this book. Or they look for the evidence in the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. The reality is the, the Prophet ﷺ went through the phases to the point that he had power so that he could have power. He didn't, he, he didn't not want it, he wanted it. Hmm. The Prophet okay. wanted the authority and the power because he knew with the power and the authority, if used with this just sense of justice and balance and foresight would lead to great good. You know, in, in the end, it, it protects people's lives, protects people's welfare, protects people's ability to think, ability to have religious convictions. It has all these benefits to it, if done right. If done wrong, the opposite. Look at ISIS. I mean, do they not quote the Quran and Sunnah? They quote it mm-hmm. in the most strictest way. And they're not, I mean, a lot of people say to me that they're misrepresenting the Quran and Sunnah. They are using the verses... But in a complete in, a, in the context that was they were never created to be mm. used in, mm-hmm. with an understanding of the of the Sunnah of the Prophet that was never understood by the companions. So the problem is not that they are not reading it and understanding it. The problem is they've never known where it came from. Mm. They never know the person it was revealed to. They never knew the community that ended up understanding and applying it in their own societies. They never understood that. The reason for that is they never met people. That told us about how it was revealed, how it was applied, how it should be applied, how the Prophet understood it, from a, with a chain going back to the Prophet. And they never had that. If you look at all their scholars, so called scholars, all the people that, you know, still rant on about them and, and say, well, you know, what do you expect and all the rest of it. It's, it's a completely orphaned political religious movement. It comes from this fact that they have they got power and they try to impose something that was never, you know, never there to be imposed. And so, what's interesting about Surah Al-Kahf is the the two pivotal stories with with, its, with with which it starts and it finishes are essentially like the Meccan and Medinian period. It's almost like a, a microcosm of the Seerah. And remember, I mentioned Surah Al-Kahf is like this watershed in the Seerah of the Prophet mm-hmm. where you can see this the the the, the, the shift in the tide. Of power, even though this is in the mid, middle late Meccan period, you would say, "Well, what shift is that discernible tide shift that only very expert minds know that they can see the change from the water coming in to the water coming out." Yeah, the and change so, is about to happen, and it's at that time the prophet prophet is almost prophesized, and he would have, prophet would have understood this is that 
that weakness, if you stay true to it, you will have the power of Dhul Qarnayn. Sure. You know, understand? If you're true to this now, stick stick true to your your feelings and your and your teachings in Mecca when it feels so difficult to do it. There will be, will be a time when you will call, you will call the the shots on the major empires of the world, mm-hmm. the major Sheikh, powers. Of is, the world. It, is it okay to see your life in two different realms? One is your individual life, and one is communal life. Mm-hmm. And every story that we read here in Quran needs to be translated in our heads for two different mm. reasons. Mm. One is individual. Yes. And one is <laughs> when you said that actually somebody came to mind my my one of my teachers, Sheikh Abdullah Fattah Bizamir, Allah grant him a long life. He was a mudir and he still is a mudir of Mahad, the, the college where we studied. And uh, he had these two aspects. One he was like small, short and um all the teachers all the teachers just were were petrified of him because his outward public persona was I need to get the only place I've ever travelled in a Muslim world where everything was organised his college you know there's inside the college and outside the college outside college is what they call fawda everything goes traffic lights bakshish um, everything is just held together with chewing gum and all the rest of it and then in, once you get into the gate, you're in a different, different jurisdiction. To the minute, to the second, everything. To the point that he had a complaint box against teachers. Okay. Like they had, there was a box, anonymous box, where you could post a letter of complaint against a teacher. Okay. And he had the key to it, only he had the key to it. <laughs> and then he would open it every week and he would bring the teachers in saying this. And the t- student's not named, so it could be anonymous. Hmm. They would still have to. Uh, this is great scholars that we answered. Having, they could easily say, "Look, and and nothing has written an anonymous letter in a, in, a, in 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 this post thing. How dare you ask ask me?" But none of them would because he was so fearful. <laughs> scary. Yeah. But he, if you look at him, small. Hmm. But I just remember him like his glasses. Going to see him, he just have his glasses like this, you know, like <laughs> like saying they're doing oh, the work and going. He was just like, you know, what do you want, son? And he would yeah. just look up and just continue on working. The dread, the fear was there. But the thing is that the balance was that in his private life, I know it's from his, his, his children and the people that know him well, he was a complete opposite. Mm. You know, so to keep the college going, he was ruthless. He didn't give a damn if you liked him, loved him. Because to be honest, his experience with you, once he's harsh with you, he just turned around and forget it because that's his that's his responsibility. But when he left that, when you used to visit him in his house, completely different, like completely different. Hmm. Like you can't recognize. You, you look at him thinking, did we not just like speak, the, just like in the college, and now you're, and it was just so humbling, and he was so humble in that sense. So. This indicates the Prophet perfectly, which is that in the extremities or the outwardly, in the battlefield, he was the most courageous, but in the house, he was the most compassionate and the mm. most soft to his children, to his companions. Um, but in the battlefield, the most ferocious. Mm. And so this is why, you know, Barab ibn Azib and other companions said that he was the most courageous of all people. So we knew who was courageous when we saw them next to, next, we saw them next to the Prophet in battle. And so <coughs> the Prophet pulled off this this persona of being both 
of being the humble servant, but also being the proud and courageous and fearless statesman as well, when needed. So you you find this with, you know, when Abu Sufyan, I think, when yeah, Abu Sufyan came, when he, when they'd broken the treaty of Hudaybiyah, he came seeking forgiveness, and the Prophet was a statesman. He refused to look at him, he refused to entertain him to the point that you would say, well, the Prophet, you know, should have been, could have been, more understanding, and embraced him, and he would have become Muslim. They would have gone back. Hmm. But the point is that he went from the Prophet to Abu Bakr to Umar to Ali. None of them, they said, if the Prophet is not entertaining you, then we can't entertain you either. But they were surprised the Prophet didn't entertain him because it could have been all over. Abu Sufyan could have said, okay, we, we, um, we kind of surrender and you can come and take Mecca. He didn't. The Prophet didn't, he wanted to do it by the book, which is an army coming in with the full power of the army. With the, the, the valor and the, and the fear struck into the Meccan people, so they would know that this is how the world works. And that's, that's, the, that's what I call the poison chalice um, of, of what Muslims need to, you know, in a sense, um, you know, stand up to, which is that you have to balance both. That, you know, popularity, and this is why, you know, in, in politics, or Muslim governments and, and governance, what's important is not how pious people think you are. You're not dear to be pious. Hmm. And this is, I think, a big, big issue with how Muslims perceive a Muslim government or a Muslim politique, is they expect the, the ruler and the governor to be some kind of wali, some kind of friend of God, some kind of pious person. A pious person should never be the head of a state. You know, you're not there to show how, how many raka'at you pray in taraweeh hmm. or how many times you go to the mosque when you're the, the government leader or all the kind of pious activities is not what you're there for. You're not elected to be pious. Hmm. You're elected for what scholars and usul say the actions of the leader are, are connected most um, directly to um, the benefits of his or her citizens. Their worship, their devotion, their signs of piety, you know how much the Quran they know, all this is secondary to the fact that they have to ensure justice, affluence, and prosperity, security in their own country. That's what's most important. And that's why the story of the Qarnain comes up. That's why we see the Prophet perfectly ruling. And then you find all the great Muslim rulers exactly in the same nature. All mm. the great rulers in our history have been of that nature where They've been judged on their actions as rulers, not as people of piety. This is why Bayezid the first, who was um, the son of Sultan Mehmed um, and the father of Yawz Salim, he actually, what we understand, he, he was so pious, he actually, in a sense, almost abdicated because his piety was getting in the way of good governance, but his governance was amazing. He's the person that brought in the Jews from when they were expelled from Muslim Spain. When the, Muslim, when the Muslims were expelled, the Jews were expelled, he opened up Turkey, the Ottoman Empire, to the Jewish um, refugees that came in. Um, so, the thing about this whole issue is that, you know, we have to be a bit more realistic. The Qur'an is there for the worshipper and also for the ruler. It's for everybody. Mm. And Surah Al-Kahf is so amazing because it gives you this amazing balance, strikes this amazing balance of how 
all aspects of life are as important as each other. Just religiosity is not this important. Kind of enormous story, I would say, the, the enormity of it. Uh, it talks about um, Zulkarnain's power, mm-hmm. its expeditions, and the the, uh, the fights and uh, building of civilization, the combat. And ayah number one, three, and four: "Qul hal nunabbiukum bil aqsarin amala." الذين ضل سعيهم في الحياة الدنيا وهم يحسبون أنهم يحسنون صنعا. and that's how the the story concludes mm-hmm. almost, mm-hmm. which is bringing it back to what how it concerns me mm-hmm. to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, say, O Muhammad, shall we, the believers, inform you of the greatest losers mm-hmm. as to their deeds? They are those. Whose effort is lost in worldly life, mm-hmm. while they think that they are doing well in work. Mm-hmm. Meaning, they are doing. In other words, what they're what they, what's happening is that they think they're doing good, but in fact, what they're doing is the opposite of what they think they're doing. And so, this is, you know, it's it's a very stark um, verse because the problem is. To, I mean, I don't know if this is the time to go in such depth into this thing. Because this, the, I was going to do these in the next session, or actually, I was going to do the previous ones in the next session. But this is deep because it, it is telling the Prophet to tell people, shall I not tell you of the people who are the greatest losers? So this is shocking because if, if, you're, if you're told the Prophet will tell you through revelation who are the people in Khusran. You know, the people that are in the greatest loss. The people in the greatest loss are the people that thought they had the most to achieve. Like loss is only if you have nothing then you can't lose. Yep. If you're if you don't invest in the in the in the stock exchange that people are doing now in a high level, no one's gonna call you a loser or a in loss unless you put a lot in. Yeah. And so these are people essentially that are doing good, but then the loss, you know, that fall to the loss is because they thought they were doing such well. Allah you know, so, so <laughs> it is pretty shocking, which is why you know I keep coming back to this idea that you know your your faith is more important than your political ideology, your political your political um, alignment, because you could build all your actions thinking you're doing good, and in fact, what the reality of that is that you're actually building on sand. You're actually doing nothing, and you know as a, as the quran will say is those whose efforts have been wasted in this life while they thought they were acquiring and uh, good by their deeds and and the interesting thing here is um it will start to mention those in the next verse ulaika alladhina kafaru bi ayati rabbihim those are the people it is those people who have disbelieved in the signs of allah um and also his the coming together with him and so their actions come to nothing um and on the day of judgment, there'll be no weight for them. They'll have no weight. In other words, they will not be of any significance at all. So, you know, the, the Quran is essentially, you know, talking about people that build and say they're doing such good, great works. And in the real in reality, if it's not based upon this understanding that's in this chapter, which is on the belief in Allah and ascribing no partners to Allah and then relating all your power to Allah. Then all of those great actions, you know, the people that give such charity, build charitable institutions, um, help humanity, mm. that help will be left on earth. Mm. So the, their name will be um, remembered on earth f- 
for posterity, they'll be known to be generous, but in the hereafter, uh, essentially your first connection and your first responsibility is to your Lord. And so your, res your, 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 your kind of results and your reward will be with the people that you've helped. But essentially, without acknowledging the power of God and putting God into the equation, the hereafter you will not have the same effect as you have on earth. But surely the connection with God is only achieved by service through mm -hmm. service of humans, interaction with human beings. Mm -hmm. And yes, with, uh, with uh, connection is with ibadah. Mm -hmm. But mostly it is to do with how we interact mm -hmm. with people. Yeah, it is, but then it's a question of if you have no connection with God in how you work, then essentially what you get on earth will be what you get based upon what you've done and you've achieved. And essentially what the Qur'an is saying that in the hereafter, because they didn't work for the hereafter, they will get nothing in the hereafter. Hmm. Like if you invest in one country and you go to another country and you expect your money to be there or your investment to be there, you won't have it there. And so yeah. a person who invests on earth... Whether it's good or bad or ugly, it doesn't make any difference. When you go to the hereafter, you shouldn't expect to 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 cash the check in the hereafter when you didn't. You didn't plan for it. You didn't, didn't work plan for, for it. it. Yeah. So it's an important thing because your mindset in terms of believing in Allah is important in the context of this whole chapter because all these stories are related in some way to showing gratitude to God, bringing God into the equation while you're doing the good actions. Yeah. It's very simple. It's not a big thing. How, how grand they are, how big they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, how small they are, insignificant, doesn't make any difference. You know, the people of Ashab al-Kahf, they were destitute, homeless, but their actions are recalled in the annals of history because of what they did. And the actions of Dhul-Qarnayn are exactly the same, because they had belief in God. They both had belief in God, and, and essentially their stories and their names have remained fresh in the minds of people that, um, you know, recite the revelation. Reflections, um, Radio Ramadan. Time just now is 9.30. Iftar is at 9.36 <coughs> uh, today. Uh, final moments of this uh, program. And um, Sheikh, just concluding uh, the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, just one name, if we can um, have some light on it, is Al-Musair. Um, al al it depends what, what the name is. Because last thing you asked me, I've not seen the Arabic, so I don't know what the... Musair, Mim Saad Yara. So Musayir is Musayir. is the one that makes things easy or the one that facilitates something. But that is, um, it depends where you got that name from because um, Musayir is the one that allows things to happen. Um, there's another name which is uh, Musa'ir. Musa'ir. Musa'ir is a different name and it's not one of the 19 names of Allah, but it's, it's the one that sets prices. Hmm. It's the one because at a certain time that they were in, in Medellin Nawara, they were complaining about the, the, the high prices and the, and the Prophet said in Allah al Musa'ir. So Musa'ir with an Ain is, is the one that sets the, um, the, the, the prices. There may be a narration in Tirmidhi that includes that in the 99 names, but Musa'ir is a name that is, is again ascribed to Allah as a description, but essentially it's one that Allah facilitates things through. Allah so I need to see the, the, the Arabic um, for that. So the 99 names Al-Hakam, Al-Muqaddim, Al-Mu'akhir, Al-Akhir, Al-Zahir, Al-Musair and Al-Witr is what we have left for our window in ARC and if you would like to sponsor one please get in touch 375-344 is the number I'll leave you with this uh, Burda today uh, 
and please remember us in your du'as while you make for yourself until tomorrow 8 p.m. inshallah assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah assalamu Thank you for listening to Radio Ramadan 365 podcasts. Make sure to visit our Radio Ramadan website at rr365.co.uk to access all of our podcasts. Stay tuned on our social channels for future content.